In the name of the one God who creates, redeems, and makes us holy. Amen. We began this month and this new year worrying about future leadership in our country, which is where the Israelites found themselves in this first reading from Deuteronomy. Moses was a hard act to follow. He was unequaled as a prophet because of the displays of power he performed. And as a moral and ethical agent, summoning people to repentance, calling the community back to faithfulness to the covenant. He knew that his time was coming to a close. God informs Moses that God would provide the leader as well as the words the leader would speak. The critical task for Israel was to hear that word. The Hebrew verb shema is used three times, and it connotes not only hearing, but responding, listening, and obeying. Later, as a people in exile without priest or king, it was the corporate acts of listening and obeying that created and shaped the community. The authority of the prophet was not bound by the existence of the political and religious structures that were destroyed in the chaos of the exile. The charismatic power of the prophet was the antidote to the hopelessness and despair of a people who had lost their nation. This text promises the people that God's ongoing care for them is found in the simple fact of God's word. God is to be found in the word uttered by the prophet. By learning to trust God's word, the people learn to trust God. Jesus speaks and is that word in today's gospel. Mark, more than any other gospel writer, emphasizes Jesus' miraculous power to heal. Of the 18 miracles he records, 13 have to do with healing, and four of those are exorcisms. Jesus goes to the synagogue to, pre to teach by healing. His gospel is a healing word and action. Mark wants to show that Jesus' action is embedded in his word. His word is effective and powerful. It liberates from the forces of evil and makes humanity whole. No oppressive power will withstand his power. He teaches with an authority having to do with seeing justice done. All the people are amazed and perplexed in the face of this authority. This new teaching is not about information, but about transformation. I think that on a personal and national level, 
we are poised for the possibility of transformation. Even now, in the midst of the crying out and convulsing of an exorcism. Jesus' new teaching, held up by Paul in the epistle, is a timely word for us to hear as we attempt to move forward. Eating meat sacrificed to idols hardly seems a pressing issue for 21st century Christians, but it was in Corinth. The Corinthian church was a divided community. It had a wealthy, well-educated, sophisticated element who believed that Christians should be free to eat meat sacrificed to idols because idols were not real. There was only one God. The social life of the upper class revolved around frequent banquets and celebrations held in dining spaces connected to temples. They also purchased their meat for their own homes there. Ordinary, less educated working people whose incomes allowed little meat in their diets and whose previous lives were tied to those temples were also part of that community. Paul agrees with the first group as far as Christians being free from the law, but he doesn't take their side. He makes the point that knowledge without love puffs up the individual while wise and knowing love builds up the community. People who obsessively devote themselves to their own knowledge turn their devotion away from God, and in so doing do not acquire true knowledge of God. The answer to this arrogance in Paul's view is loving God in our neighbor. At the heart of Paul's message is a particular understanding of Christian freedom. Freedom is not the right to do as one wishes. Christian freedom is grounded in love, God's love for us in Jesus Christ. In Christian life, we become responsible for one another. That is central to what it means to be in Christ. For that reason, in any conflict, relationships are as important an element in decision-making and behavior as are the facts of the case. Paul comes down hard on those who justify their behavior on the basis of theological arguments alone even when he agrees with those arguments. If necessary, he says he will become a vegetarian rather than harm those who would be hurt by him eating this meat. Paul wants them and us to know that being certain of what is right or wrong, appropriate or inappropriate, is not sufficient in itself even if one's position is correct. Love is greater than knowledge, particularly with the weaker ones among us.
When we hurt others, we hurt Christ himself because we cause pain in his body, the church. We are called to show reconciling love, and that has direct bearing on what we do and how we do it. Paul calls for unity and holiness together. Unity is easy if you don't care about holiness. Holiness is easy if you don't care about unity. The trick is to have both of them together. That's what Paul is advocating. We are free to become Christ in the world to the same extent that we recognize Christ in others, especially the last and the least. In the final analysis, it's about loyalty to Christ. This raises questions for us about what practices we condone or condemn in relation to the cultures of secularism, materialism, and, and nationalism. How do we act prophetically and maintain appropriate relations in a divided society? Do we view Christ as one who teaches us to build a wall to protect the Christian community, or as one who is himself a bridge to neighbors of different faiths and traditions? What is the relationship between individual freedom and the responsibility for a community's health? Radical individualism, a hallmark of American culture, undermines community. Our presiding bishop earlier this month, in a moment of national crisis, asked, who shall we be? He went on to say, I want to submit that the way of love that leads to beloved community is the only way of hope for humanity. Consider the alternative. The alternative is chaos, not community. The alternative is the abyss of anarchy, of chaos, of hatred, of bigotry, of violence. And that alternative is unthinkable. We have seen nightmarish visions of that alternative. As we gathered as a monastic community to watch the inauguration of the new president and listen to his message and commitment to truth, reconciliation, and unity, we felt a glimmer of hope for the possibility of new and fuller life for all. There is much work to be done. Words matter, facts matter, civility matters, law matters, justice matters. How we approach that work will determine the outcome. Weighed down by pandemic fatigue and anxiety, we may feel stuck in our inability to muster the energy it will take to meet the task. Beatrice Proutot reminds us that our deepest truth is our union with God. 
It is the root of our reality and from which optimism is derived. She writes, I believe that radical optimism is the good news of the gospel, and I propose that we take it seriously. Optimism, like pessimism, tends to be a self-justifying outlook. The more pessimistic you are, the more you are likely to fail and thus justify your pessimism. And similarly, the more optimistic you are, the more apt you are to succeed and justify your optimism. However, my optimism is not merely pragmatic. I also believe that it is ultimately metaphysically true because of its being radical optimism coming from the root of our being, securely held by the absolute being. Radical optimism and active hope are the keys to giving us the strength, the faith, and the courage to face the difficult realities that have been unveiled. Pray for our fractured and divided nation. Pray for those who share your political convictions and for those who don't. Pray for justice for those who live at the margins of society, for those who by virtue of race, ethnicity, and sexual identity have been denied the fullness of opportunity and life in America. Pray, trusting in the one God who holds us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.